In part two, we continue our dialogue with Michael Murphy, the only person with a 70-year intimate front seat view of the human potential movement. In this segment, Michael explores the farther reaches of human possibilities. Among other topics, he describes the birth and death and rebirth of the psychedelic movement and the surprising amount of evidence suggesting that consciousness survives bodily death. Fasten your seatbelt and enjoy the ride with this 92-year young pioneer of consciousness exploration. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self society spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Mike, if we stepped back for a moment, because you've touched on a lot here, and I'd just love to have you have you step step back and look at, you know, you have this incredible panoramic view of some 70 years of ex- exploration. Yeah. And I'd just love to have you step back and reflect on, for example, gosh, there's so many questions, but what have you found that's most, uh, among all the practices you've worked with, what are some of you've found that have been most, you think, are most powerful and impactful? Well, you know, Roger, I have a very hard time with that sort of question. I mean, it's you. it depends on who. Yeah, good. Yep. And we are more different from one another than really our parents ever told us and our professors. Mike, Michael, what about you? What's been the most impactful for you in these 70 years? Well, okay, I, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of Cyrano de Bergerac, you know, about his nose. You know, let me, let me tell you all the ways. Well, these are two incredible questions at once. I would say with me, I don't consider myself a great exemplar. You know, I'm certainly not. I'm doing it my way with constant reference to how I can best serve. So, for example, meditation something now that I don't do it. It it happens all the time with me. It really does. Mm. So I could give a glib answer to you, John, and say meditation, it's more than endured in me. It's developed in me. But I've learned more from myself than from particular gurus. I have learned from some theorists a lot. For example, I mean, to get very personal, when we had this 13-year project we call Surset, which is produced, well, a lot of ripples, and this is part of our unfinished business. This is on what's going on after we die. The different traditions give us different answers. We don't know. We know some things. We're learning some things. I would, I'll take anybody on who says they know all the Bardos and all this stuff. I just think of Voltaire. I think of somebody, my critical mind, I've seen too much to take these easy answers. So we're exploring into that. All right. Along the way, in that line of inquiry, we've had a lot of reference to the subliminal mind in the Frederick Myers sense, you know, with William James and Myers and all of them, the richness of the subliminal mind 
And Adam has helped me see many, many ways in which it's acting on us when we hardly know and how to harness it. And if I want to kind of get cute, I say it's like in Star Wars, you know, remember R2-D2, who Han Solo had R2-D2. Well, R2-D2 is working all the time. But even when he's not instructed, well, our subliminal mind, in some ways, is like R2-D2. It never stops. And I flirt with it so much all the time, say, in, in writing, particularly fiction, that pretty soon my experience is these characters are talking to me, okay? So, okay, if you, if you say that's out of your subliminal mind, which I think it is, in other words, all of us are being informed by this subliminal mind, which is a broader concept, say, than Freud's subconscious. Although now I'm very much interested in people looking again at his flirtation with things paranormal. You know, it's, it's not known. He, he really got into this at the end of his life. And a lot of his cohorts, particularly his biographer, Jones, tried to stop him because they're going to ruin the movement. He said, before long, Freud, you're going to be talking about angels. And he, he would, this at late at night, Jones would say, he'd say, there are more things on heaven and earth, Horatio, than your philosophy has dreamed of. He, he harbored this deviant side. Freud did. I, I've come to admire Freud more and more. But nevertheless, his subconscious wasn't as the same thing as Frederick Myers' subliminal mind. So, okay, the subliminal mind. So I, as I've gotten older, I would say, John, I'm more capacious to the promptings that I used to reject. Now, part of it came out of the fact that I was influenced by the Arbindu Ashram. I remained a virgin till I was 32. So it meant I was good at screening off the erotic. I, I, I was good at it. I have to say, I mean, I've even had the thought that in the gay pride parades, I might someday march at the end where the asexuals, they march at the end. You know, there's the gay, there's, there's all the different ones, then the asexuals at the end. I've told my friends, I think I might march with them someday. But of course, I lost my virginity. All right. Oh, I don't have time to even open the door a crack to what I can tell you about what this did to me. Okay. So I've had this big experience of opening a set of inhibitions. If you want to, in a very mainstream, reductive kind of way, talk about it, say I gave up the habit of repression. One of the things I like to do in meditation is time my thoughts. How long did that thought take? It's just an interesting question. You're sitting, say, Vipassana style, and beep, whoa, that was a download and a half in one second. Whoa. Okay. I think I'm getting better and better at this. Download time. Well, then, then there's some big, one of these things that I think all of us have, but I have, kind of a glob of thought. For example, I will go over all members of whatever sports team I'm rooting for, and in comes a new thought about the roster of the San Francisco 49ers, and then I'll go through it. And I'm trying to just let thoughts come and go. And if I'm doing a kind of a Zogchen thing, you nip it right in the bud. But, oh, oh no, this is too good. I need to go back to the quarterback. Okay, that, so that kind of thing, which is a, we can characterize it however we can. Uh, this is another subject that's up for us right now. The nature of your thoughts, their texture, their capacity to take you over. And because so many of our friends, you know, people like us, 
have some form of OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. And it's, you know, it's a plague in America because a lot of OCD types look great. You know, certain lawyers and certain accountants. And that OCD tendency can be very creative. I see it in myself. But we all have friends who get swallowed in whatever constructs are delivered to them. So I would say my sensitivity to the varieties of, well, let's call it mental experience, has grown, and the language and the conversation about it is, for me, has grown more sophisticated through the years. So that would be something. But there are other practices, John, that, for example, I have never made any peace, really, with psychedelics. I had eight trips between 62 and 66. You know, Aldous Huxley, Laura Huxley gave me LSD, pretty fancy. Tim and Dick Alpert then, you know, because I'd, I'd known Dick Alpert way back, God, before he was Ramdas. They gave me LSD. Willis Harmon, you know, the, uh, Jim Fadiman once. As part. So I had the kind of elite gifts of these, and my trips got worse and worse and worse. And so it's not only that I didn't make peace, I decided this ate for me. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And the same for a number of other practices. So because I'd been meditating, well, I mean, for 11 or 12 years before I started Eslin, I did have a keel in the water, so to speak, to steer through the fashions and the entanglements and the bewitching parts of a lot of these things as they appear particularly for me, if they were delivered by an erotic-looking lady who wanted to show me some amazing new something. And I, you know, I did have a certain vulnerability. And fortunately, I ducked a lot of bullets. But as far as I know, I never had any unwanted children. I really doubt that there are any out there either. But in those early days at Esalen, I don't recommend coming into a place like that as a virgin. And you better, you know, have your cat whiskers up and ready to... Anyway, so uh, there have been any number of practices at Esalen that I have avoided. So I don't go seeking a variety of experiences for the sake of the variety. Let me put it that way. So I've been a kind of a straight-line guy through and have grown on, let's say, I would say the meditation front and other fronts. And meditation now is a word that's almost lost its meaning. It, it means so many different things. I mean, there are hundreds of practices that you would describe as meditation. And we're finally, slowly getting a more sophisticated cohort of people who can distinguish things. I would say that cohort is still relatively small, that who can discern the differences between this disclosure and that, that come, perhaps sitting in the same posture, with the same format, but these are quite different openings or disclosures within, although outside you look pretty much the same. I mean, you'd have to have an extremely sophisticated and developed guru to see any differences. I don't even... I've grown more skeptical about gurus. I, I have. I must say, I've... So this is a long roundabout answer, John. I mean, this would we'd have to talk more about this. Well, can I can I bring you back to something you were talking about the subliminal voice, and I I I I think that is how you talk about kind of personal wisdom voice and how we apprehend things at a deeper level, if I'm not mistaken. So I'd like to hear 
what you're hit right now. I know you've been researching life after death and reincarnation. So from the, your scientist side and from your mystic side and what you've learned from your own interior journey, where do you stand with this question at the moment? Yeah, that, you know, that's such a great question. Well, I would like to tell you my relation to that, okay? I, you're going to either believe me or not, so I just, I'll just i say it as straight as I can. Anyway, from that lecture, I heard as a 19-year-old, and what happened to me in the weeks afterwards, I have never had any doubts about people meaning something very real when they say Atman is Brahman, okay? I can't say I believe in that. I know it. It's been confirmed to me in more ways than I will ever be able to count in its various gradations and how it's interpreted and so forth. Okay, here I was then, really opened up by Aurobindo, who not only believed in reincarnation, he wrote about it and everything. I never bought it. Now, I have to look at this in myself. What was the difference? And it's forced me to look back on what kind of an altar boy I was. I was a very religious kid, and uh, the, I was the only churchgoer in my family. starting when I was 11. I've always remembered. I mean, it was just, it meant the world to me. But I couldn't agree with most of the things my minister said. I've often wondered, it was interesting that I was so skeptical so young. For example, he would talk a lot about angels. And I would always laugh. And in fact, my pal, he was also an altar boy. We would did have a lot of wicked laughs about the minister. Although, And he, was, he became an Episcopalian minister. And for, I often thought I was going to be. Okay, so what was that? crap detector. And I've looked at myself. It was a big item in our family. I mean, my father, my, you know, uh, my grandfather had delivered John Steinbeck, you know, and so in this tiny town, we had this literary thing going on, Steinbeck and my father. And then my father loved all the skeptics we read. I mean, laugh a lot, Mark Twain and Will Rogers and, you know, Jonathan Swift and Oscar Wilde. I mean, these were favorites. And somehow I imbibed that half. Okay, now up to Spiegelberg. So reincarnation. So I've, I was agnostic. I admire the Dalai Lama for telling the world he's never had an experience of his past life. As far as I know, <laughs> Roger, he's, he, he's, he's held to that. I mean, he, yeah. I, I love yeah. him for admitting that and not having to be the perfect Dalai Lama. So anyway, so it was my idea to launch a major inquiry at Esalen about one of the, yet another thing, that we're surrounded by people who say they know that you reincarnated, and they can tell you something about your reincarnation. And you can imagine how much of this I've gotten, having started Esalen. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I have been assaulted by several hundred people, at least, telling me who I am, where I am in in the advance or the of life and my past life. I mean, it's unbelievable how many people claim they see something in you. So, and and did I, they? Well, did any it, of them agree? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it was a self-canceling problem, right? <laughs> because the disagreements. Oh God, Roger, we can talk about the enneagrams. I've been assigned to every single enneagram, but anyway, <laughs> although there's a tendency to. To, to, to center on the sevens, but anyway, hell with it. But anyway, so reincarnation. So, okay, so we had the best we could find. And, you know, I, I brought here today, knowing this might come up, 
these uh, books that we've been producing, I don't know, Irreducible Mind, Beyond mm-hmm. This is a, a gang of people, and we I think we've fed a lot of energy into that network. It's still déclassé in academia, but around the inquiry into this, the new book by Bruce Grayson, you know, 40 years, head of mm-hmm. the Journal of Near-Death Studies. Here's his new book. I don't know if you guys have seen it after. Anyway, so I came in with these people who are straight shooters and really good, and we started hearing this stuff. So it became the tradition after a while that each year when we met, we would have confession, mutual confession, the confessio time. Where are we now in our belief in survival and reincarnation? So we kind of measured each other against each other over this 13 years. And then I would be asked the question you're asking, John. I would be asked this. I'd be given a lecture. And people would say, where do you stand now? Where does Murphy stand now on this issue? So here's the kind of things I say. To say, well, I, was, I came into this. Uh, I, would, I always give the same thing. It's not a question of belief for me when the dimensions of in talking about transcendence and transformation, I mean, Atman, Brahma, there are certain realizations. What William James called the Moor is an immense, undiscovered country that we are all, the human race, is exploring into. But I've also been committed to not foreclosing on the nature of the Moor, okay? So now on this. So, all right, this wisdom thing, this internal crap detector. And for me, it is a function that we all have to sum up all the inputs that have been coming in. And to the extent that we are clear of blind spots and prejudice, and the more open we are to experience generally, this summing up capacity gives us whatever degree of connoisseurship we may have. Now, to run any kind of artistic endeavor, and I know where this is going, let's say a symphony or an opera or anything else, the success depends on the mastery of the, the impresario. Uh, this great book, Michael Polanyi's book, Personal Knowledge, for me remains still the numero uno, the number one book for me in this, tacit knowing. I honor tacit knowing. But my tacit knowing about this or that or the other thing has developed. I can see it in myself. But to stay in touch, for me, I need to stay in touch with all the rivers of wisdom that flow into the into my heart. You know, in reading the algorithms of my heart, I'm sometimes mystified by my reaction. I'm mystified by it. But rather than trying to conform it to some part of my belief system, just own it. Own it. What, what is it trying to tell you? So, okay. So I explain this to people, and now I'm speaking. So one day I got a pretty spirited set of questions from the audience. I gave my usual response. And driving home from the lecture, I felt slimy. I felt wrong. And I said, what is this feeling? I woke up the next morning thinking, you were fibbing to that group. You're repeating old formulas. You're starting to believe in it, and you were too glib about your agnosticism. That was my reading of how I felt. So as an experiment on myself, I decided that the next time, in such a situation, I would give my usual speech on agnosticism and openness and watch these 
readings of the algorithms of my heart. Let's call it that. My cocktail of feelings. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you guys, to what extent you sometimes feel this way, but where you can't read the feelings, I could give you a lot of examples of this. I'd have to give more examples. So anyway, so okay, here came the next time. So this was going to be my practice. How do I respond and hold to my well-grooved agnosticism speech? So they started in. I, I swear to God, this is what happened. And they were talking, and I started to laugh. And I, I had a hard time controlling my laughter. So people said, what are you laughing at? And I actually said, well, if I told you, I don't know if you'd believe it and or understand me, but it's something's tickling me. So I laughed, and I've been laughing ever since. I mean, it's <laughs> maintaining agnosticism against the inputs from 12 years of data. Let me put it that way. It's as if I've been constrained by the data. So in that sense, this is the kind of science we have to do. You, you can't always do it just by reading out numbers in the observable world. You have to also know subjectively things, too. It's, it's one of the great sticking points in the marriage between science and spirituality, is how to have a capacious empiricism. This is in Future of the Body, this was my thing, you know, like James's radical empiricism. I call it synoptic empiricism, interdisciplinary, integral empiricism. So you have to own it all, even the algorithms of your own heart, which are still processing. So, okay, now back to reincarnation. Well, Michael, can I just, can I just take, I want to just emphasize something there because you're giving me a whole new insight. First off, just to acknowledge the, the beauty and purity of intent in holding to agnosticism because it is a very, when, when done as a practice, it is a very honest way of being. It's, as you said earlier, it's so easy just to dive into a preconstructed idea Amen. or take someone else's. Amen. But it's a, it takes a certain, it's a practice to stay agnostic. But what you're making me realize is that it's more of a practice than I realized, that, that as data comes in, of course, we tend to form our ideas and our conclusions, and yet still to hold the hold all that within don't know mind is is an ongoing discipline. So thank you, Rogers. That's beautiful, and thank you, thank you. Exactly, agnosticism as a practice. I, I frankly, I've never heard that phrase. Thank you. I'll try to give you credit for it. Uh, I might. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, who knows where it came from? <laughs> no, no. It, no. Agnosticism is a practice because, well, we have to. And, you know, actually, we all do that. You know, God, if you've been, oh, God, you know, we've all learned our lessons about judgments we've made. I, in my case, I've often been criticized. I'm often criticized for being too forgiving. George Leonard used to say, Mike, you know, you're so forgiving. But he says, do you have to reward people who abuse you or your friends? Do you have to reward them by that smile of yours? Don't reward them. So anyway, George was always on my case. So I've had to learn about this. But certainly Esalen has taught me, boy, my crap detector has been strengthened immeasurably in, in, in countless ways, just the parade of gurus and the parade of ideas and the 
disappointments and the, oh, God. Every one of them with the truth. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, it's, no it's, un, it's, it's unbelievable. So what? just to finish this, where your question started, John, okay, here's, I need the concept of degrees of evidentiality, we all know that, and degrees of certitude. So if I measure the different empirical data bodies, I mean, there are, let's take near-death experiences, okay, this book of Bruce Grayson, 45 years. This guy has a, he, he's like an Arnold Schwarzenegger for a crap detector. He's so discriminating, but there's no doubt. There, I mean, it's unarguable about these experiences. You know, in an operation, for example, the, you're floating around in your astral body and you see this stuff. This is unarguable anymore. So when people get critical about it, I just say, well, you just haven't ex exposed yourself to the data. All right. So that is definitely, for me, a building block on another thing we're going to tackle at Esalen, we hope, is on the whole nature of the subtle body, you know, and there are many doctrines of this, and this has been a big item in our SIRSAM group. And there's so many doctrines. Aurobindo was with the theosophists, the mother, with, I would argue very strongly, out of the Taitari Upanishad, that the, the five bodies, you know, the Ananda, well, the Anakosha, that's the flesh. The Pranakosha, this is the vitality. And anyone can feel in a room who is the biggest vital force in the room? I mean, we know that. We are, we're animals. We can feel it. And they would attribute that in the Arbindo system to the prana body. Okay, then the mano, maya, kosha, the mind. You know, most of us will, if you ask somebody, who's the smartest person in the room right now? People would give you an answer. They do. We, we talk like this. We're animals. So we feel that. This is now the argument in the ashram. And then the Taitri Upanishad says there's the Vijnana, Maya Kosha, which is, that's the whole subject, and then the Ananda Kosha, the bliss body in which we will live between lives. We are going after this now in various ways. We don't have time today to talk about it, but it's going to be a new thing at Esalen. A guy named Simon Cox has written a book called The Subtle Body, colon, A Genealogy. And he is a graduate student of Jeff Kripals, who spent seven years in these Chinese monasteries, and he's fluent in classic Chinese. He reads uh, the Tao Te Ching in Chinese. Classical Greek, he reads Plato in Greek. He has a good grasp of Sanskrit, and he's learned Tibet. He's practiced a million things, but he can't get a job as a professor, and he claims it's there are three reasons. He's white, He's male, and he's straight. And uh, this is a real crisis for men now in the field of religious studies. It's so hard to, and uh, Jeff Kripal is really deciding what to do for these male graduate students in religious studies. So this is where, this is good for Esalen, though, because we can harvest all these rejected brains, <laughs> and they come and do things for us real cheap. So just as a kind of bloodthirsty innkeeper. I think, ooh, this is working for us. So anyway, we've got Simon and then working with Charlie Stang, who's head of the big center there at the Harvard Divinity School, and others to build up a new fellowship at Esalen. That's one thing we can, we're good at. You build up these fellowships around the subtle body. 
Okay, and coming back now to reincarnation. So for me, it's now unarguable. There is something. Well, it's true, these subtle body things. And I, I have to give you a lot of experiences I've had that confirm for me this. Okay. Yeah, back back to the slime. What was this next talk? No, 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 but I, I'm going back to the slime. I, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll never forget it. How could you be this slimy? That was actually the adjective. I was. It was worse than being dishonest. It was just a slimy. You're lying to everybody there. That's how it came to me. Okay, so in response to that, I find myself building a body of data sets, a set of sets of what is unarguable, okay? So it's, it's a good driver for me in deciding what to go after next at our CTR part of Esalen, you know, say, so I put it to use. This, what's the, what are these questions in front of us? So they, they add up to a lot of evidence that there could be reincarnation. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, Mike, can I, can I just make a distinction here? Because you just spoke specifically about reincarnation, but a couple of previous places you talked about survival of bodily death and reincarnation. I just want to point out that those are actually, they're usually lumped together, but they're actually quite distinct. Yes. Because one could have Atman Brahman, and yes, so we dissolve back into, yes. the, into Brahman, but it's not to say when there's necess that necessarily implies reincarnation. That's great, Roger. I, absolutely. That's right. Okay, survival of bodily death, there are so many doctrines, you know, of it. I mean, in the West, obviously, you get one life. That one, I totally reject. I, it's, it's so stupid. I mean, with this whole cosmos set up in all of this, and you got one life, bing, and then you're judging eternity. It's a very primitive, the Judeo-Christian Islamic Dharma stream is filled with the most absurd and unwarranted belief systems. We all know that, but we're still going through the, you know, we're in the early innings of the Enlightenment, you know. I mean, Voltaire's, we still need Voltaire around here. Anyway, so you're right. In essence, you could say that I'm, you know, building a theoretical frame that I can live with empirically grounded with the toughest people I know and the best people I know and the best data that we have. So I want to build it on that. So what I've wondered about, and, uh, and now we actually have discussed this through these years with this gang, that there's all sorts of ways the universe could be, not the universe described merely through the senses, but the, the all-subsuming supernature, the undiscovered country, including all of it. There are many ways in which we could, depending on the degree of agency we have. Now, this is another one. Now, I, John, back to one of your other questions. What has grown in me because of my experience? One is degree of agency. I'd have to tell you about some other stuff we've gotten into that show or that powerfully suggest that what goes on on the other side after we're dead is, is central to that, is the degree of agency this subtle body has in that state we get to. People who are completely fluid and mushed around and have no agency. And we certainly, God bless them all. And if it we're in psychotherapy, I mean, every therapist knows some people have no ego strength at all. And there's a swimming presence. And I, I fear for them when they die. And what's going to become of them? So I do think that this agency... now. For me, degree of agency can get anchored 
very deeply in Atman Brahman. And I have to believe, if I have indeed reincarnated, why that came to me with such powerful recognition and then has paid off in a million ways ever since, I could believe that in a previous lives, I developed it. Because let's say in that class at Stanford, 600 of us there, not everyone reacted this way. I mean, I was the most certifiably religious nut that came out of that thing. But it was based on this overwhelming disclosure. And if somebody says to me, well, this is your belief, I say, well, it's my belief, but it's based on what I know. I know. Yeah, yeah, Michael, I would say it takes courage to be a Gnostic as well as an agnostic. There's just different sides of the coin, maybe. But yes. to say that is really something. That's No, that's beautifully said, John. I mean, we can be Gnostic and agnostic at the same time. This is where we need a vision of human nature as complex. I mean, to be complex is good. That's who we really are. But we, we may be undeveloped in a number of ways. So this is back to the integral, which I got from Aurobindo. I mean, it's body, mind, heart, and soul. It's more than that. It's filled with, and this is another thing I'm into, by the way, right now. We need more words. We need language to identify certain things. And a lot of this I get out of the world of sport. There are many kinds of disclosures you could call mystical, but that word mystical doesn't give you any actual information. I mean, it's in that zone, it's mystical-like, but it's a particular slice of the, all that we could call mystical. That particular athletes who have never heard of Atman and Brahman and who come from all sorts of backgrounds, and but yet they come up with these. So we need more words. We need to understand what's going on. And among them, then, is this, well, Gnosticism and agnosticism. But I think I, I should just sum up right now, John, this line, which is back to reincarnation. So what I, the most honest answer I, I would have to give now in a lecture, I would have to say, definitely there is life after death in some form or other. If, indeed, we reincarnate to the degree of we come back to earth, I don't think we need to sometimes. I mean, maybe we can go to another planet. Maybe we can live somewhere else. I'm not confident enough about the structure of the more, in James's sense, of the undiscovered country. We don't know enough yet, but that we survive and enter, enter this. Now, in Tibet, they've got the bardos and all this stuff. These Tibetan guys, some of them are good, but I've met a lot of them. And they're full of contradictions themselves. I mean, they're not a special caste that, is, you know, it's funny. So many of my friends are very agnostic and smart about things. But you get to the Tibetans and they kind of, well, or, or other things, and they lock in. They become young in that department. To be with a Tibetan is to be with an enlightened person. Well, when you have as much experience as me, it's ridiculous. But... For them, oh my God, the capacity to be glamorized among the elite, the so-called elite in Marin County. You know what I mean? The Marin County elite is has its own undeveloped sides. So they just need better crap detectors. They, they have to hang out with more Tibetan. They have to be, you know, assaulted by 
you know, sexually aroused or whatever. They have to be abused into more wisdom. But any well, in case, Mike, the, Mike, there's a saying in Tibet that it's very important to choose a guru who lives three valleys away from you, <laughs> so you don't you, you don't see them much. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good one. Anyway, so I would. My answer to you is yes to reincarnation, but we're finding out what it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me personally, it's not always good news. I mean, it, it could be a bumpy ride, I think, after death. It could be a bumpy yeah. ride, for, uh, uh, theoretically. Certain people are so hung up on this, that, and the other thing, you almost have to believe it's in their subtle body. And it's whatever the structural repository of that which we are saying is reincarnating. See, now, what is that? Now, Aurobindo had quite an elaborate system, you know, the mother did. And the mother was very provocative. She would lecture at night, so she would talk about, as you sow, so shall you reap. What you develop will go across to the other side. And if you haven't worked stuff out, it'll come right with you. You can't shake it all off just because you lose this body. Some people, for example, have such powerful mind, and it is developed to such an extent that it could rule them after they die and not allow them to surrender to what is or to navigate what is, but have to do it their way. That could be an awful karma if it took you into whatever. I, who knows? You see what I'm saying? In other words, there's something scary about all this. And I think that's why a lot of people resist this stuff. It's scary. I mean, where you, hey, you know, and let's, uh, you, know, you see what I'm saying? I experienced that. Am I ready to die? And now, you know, being 91, this question, because until a few years ago, I really subconsciously thought I was immortal. But, uh-oh, 91. I mean, how many years have I got? So I'm, I'm thinking more about how I will cross over. Yeah. So I have to say again, now this is where, to be very honest, let's say if I'm asked by an audience... And instead of giving an answer like I'm giving, trying to give to you, John, and I just give him a glib response, see, that's, that's why the slimy feeling, you know, it's, it's not an honest reply. And I'd have to, but, uh, but I do have enough in me left that I haven't completely shaken off yet of wanting to give them something to make them happy, you know. There's a part of me that's too nice, and it's better to just say, this is where I am. And yes... Yes, but that's that would be the answer. And now, but so for me, the way out is straight back to Atman Brahman. I think that's so strong in me that that will be the move I can't help but make. Straight back upstairs. Well, that, that, that's been the context for your life, it sounds like, for, for over 70 years now. That is the fundamental substrate of your worldview and understanding of yeah of yourself, of, of us, of human nature, right. and of reality. Yes, that's right, Roger. And so I think I've heard uh, very few people, guys, have I said all the stuff I'm saying right here. You put that deep into play, and it's kind of working itself out right here. It's kind of getting into these things. For example, with me, this fear feeling, part of it is allied to the deeper disclosures. Are, you know, Rudolf Otto got it right about the tremendum, the numinous tremendum and the facetosum, you know, Rudolf Otto's thing. 
the overwhelming fear that can ensue when you've had one of these tremendous mystical experiences. When I was meditating like I was in my 20s, there were a couple of times when it hit me with such force twice that I fell down on the floor shaking. Now, both times it was in church, and both times there was a, a mass being sung. Once it was in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and once in the Stanford Chapel. Both times I f- was on the floor, and people were saying, Jesus had a stroke or something like this. It was the tremendum, hit by the tremendum. So that, in my, let's say, like now, the state I'm in now, can come down as fear. And, you know, Fritz Perls had a lot of good lines. I mean, a lot of anxiety is suppressed excitement. So I've said to myself in getting ready for death that I would need to take a couple of months off and just get aimed right to take the right launch angle. Let's put it that way. Mm. Anyway. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. So what else, guys? I mean, there's a lot. One, one question that comes to my mind, Michael, is is a continuation of the, what you've been reflecting on is the evolution of your own unfolding understanding and the kind of surprises that have hit you. And I'm wondering, over yeah. your 72 years of, of immersion in, in an exploration of our human nature and potentials, what are the things that have most surprised you? Well, here's Roger, you're, uh, I, you know, you're a wonderful counselor and therapist. And so you're hitting me with some tender questions here. And I have to be honest, the first one that came up, one of the things is, well, four times that I can remember, people who are respected and all behind my back formed a kangaroo court to get me to be or do something. And each time it, it astonished me. So these surprises by the complexities of human nature, particularly in relation to power. And, you know, and in every case, it has something to do with Esalen. So instead of my buddies talking to me, and I'm an amiable guy, to arm up with six, ten, in one case, twelve people to move me, well, either they hugely overrate my King Kong that might emerge. I don't know what they thought. So that's been their own surprise. People's need to play the Game of Thrones, you know that? Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. And to me, spiritual things seem to capture that power drive and alpha mounting behavior. There are certain men I know who must mount you. They must. They have to do it. It always amazes me when it happens and how it happens. So that's been a surprise. It's made me more worldly wise, obviously, and forced me to, you know, think about a lot of things. Another realm of surprise, let's call it a whole realm of surprise, is how in the realm of transformative practice and the strong alterations that occur, say, at Esalen, people have surprised me again and again. So it's made me more attuned to clues I missed. I think it's made me more perceptive about people generally. I've been surprised to the upside, let me put it that way, as well as to the downside by people. In other words, to have a chum gang up with someone else to take you down, essentially, that's a tough one. That's really tough. It's not to hurt me physically, but to, well, I'd have to walk you through some of these things. God, 
to say disappointment, but on the other side, to be so, I mean, it confirms to me the, the latent divinity. I mean, these disclosures, these signals of transcendence, you know, Peter Berger's idea that people surprise you. I mean, let's, let's just say nothing has surprised me more than the response to this book I wrote called Golf in the Kingdom. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I wisecrack, you know, but I'm the person who discovered the golf is actually a mystery school for Republicans. I mean, it's <laughs> character. <laughs> Long they, live golf. That's <laughs> I mean, a wonderful book. They, they come, if I'm on many golf courses, they hear I'm there, the book has become a big item. You know, they're celebrating now the 50th anniversary, and so I just wrote a new introduction for it. So that has been a valley of surprises. I mean, the many surprises. Of the stories they will tell me. I would have to take you with me. It's like I'm an anthropologist that's gone to Borneo. And the natives, you know, they look, you know, they morally, some of them have a bone in their nose. I mean, they just like, I mean, they should be in the Ku Klux Klan. And they're coming out with these statements, you know, down south. You go down there, there's some of these southern country clubs, they're pretty racist, you know. <laughs> you know, we've, all of us have had so many surprises on the Russian front. Yeah. You know, I'm madly in love with Russia and Russians. I just, and our foreign policy establishment has got a lot of rotten elements. It's just awful. As John Le Carre said, the British perfected hypocrisy and, you know, the white man's burden. But America were the Brits' best students. And now that we have to take care of Europe. And so it's so interesting to, for example, the way the French, Germans, Russians, and Ukrainians have formed the group of four to keep the Americans out. Why doesn't the New York Times tell us more about this? Because the Americans are the most powerful. They come with a moral swagger that is just so deeply assimilated. Their, will, their hypocrisy is well integrated. I never had this thought before, but when they cross over, they'll go lying onto the other side. I don't know. I've got to write something about that. So with the Russians, well, this would be another, this would be a conversation unto itself, all my surprises. I mean, how this one did this thing, this other one did this thing. And, you know, we were really surprised by Yeltsin's behavior. You know, we paid for his trip. We we sponsored it because young people around him. I was against it, actually, at first, because I was totally with Gorbachev, and I could feel this conflict with Yeltsin. But anyway, most of the folks involved with us, and so we brought him, and then he had a conversion experience. And, you know, you've heard about this, I mean, in the Houston supermarket, but it wasn't that he just changed his mind. It was a kind of what I would call hypopsychotic, a hypomanic episode that exhibited itself in the most astonishing way, and it lasted four or five days, and he went back and he quit the Communist Party. He was still, you know, this is 89, this is before the putsch came. But I won't walk you through that. But that was a monumental surprise with historic consequences. I mean, it led to the putsch. It led to the, he dissolved the Soviet Union. You know, now there are 15. That's not where we get to Ukraine. That's where it's the problem we're having now. And I'm still surprised by people who I know are good guys. Say like Biden. He is a good guy. His son has come twice to Esalen, you know, Hunter Biden. I don't know if you read about him. He's had a lot of problems with drugs and drinking and all this. He's been to Esalen at twice on therapy things. So you get 
I don't know Joe Biden himself, but you get close to so many of these people and you wonder, these people are running our government? I wouldn't want them to date a daughter of mine if I had a daughter. I mean, these are not nice people. Some of these guys in the intelligence agencies, America is not perfect in this department. But again, that's a world where I'm constantly surprised. Actually, I'm, I'm better than I used to be at reading this one versus that one. And sometimes I've been surprised to the upside by some of these guys. Yeah, you know, Roger, that's, that's a hell of a question. Where have you been surprised? Jesus, I've been surprised a lot. Stay tuned for part three of this wonderful dialogue with Michael Murphy, in which he explores ways we can integrate the many discoveries of human potentials and how the human potential movement has spread around the world. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.